All right. So today we're actually going to be doing uh, a reading out of chapter or John chapter four, verses four through forty-two, which a lot of people know as being the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And we're following along our sermon series of women with authority. Uh, and so you might be asking, well, how does this woman have authority? You know, she just goes to get some water. Uh, where, where does her authority lie? Um, and like all of us, her authority lies within Christ. Um, but it's also a passage that I want to discuss as well because there's a lot of stuff we've been going through our Bible study or our Sunday schools that we've been discussing about um, hermeneutics or exegesis and how we've talked about this is how you read and study your Bible, knowing your history, knowing the culture that it came in, um, knowing the original audience that it was written to, knowing the original text, um, the language that it was written in, um, the things that are going around it, and... If you guys know me at all, before I uh, ended up coming here, or City Church, or even had any calling of being a pastor, or I guess maybe I was always called to do that, but before I decided that I would do that, because I didn't want to do it, um, I was planning on becoming a Johannian scholar, and, and going to Duke, uh, and going through there, and going through their PhD programs to get a degree in that. And so that essentially means that I would be a scholar in anything that John wrote, or the possible Johns wrote. So I love the Gospel of John uh, a lot, and there's a special spot in my heart for it, just because it's one of those things, like I think of Blade, for example, when him and I first started hanging out, and we were discussing about where do you start reading in the Bible and stuff like that, and Blade has a very creative mind, where it can go all over the place. We joke around and say it's Blade ED, but it can go all over the place, but on the same sense, that's one of the reasons why he's a great artist. And John is one of those books that you can read in that manner. Whenever you see water, you see light, you see um, above, below, um, you, you hear these passages of spirit and stuff like that. They all are, are, are intertwined and just go in a giant circle. Even something like Nicodemus appearing at the night. This is a, John is intentionally saying he's coming at night to say that he's ashamed, that he's making sure no one can see him that he is coming at a time of night. So this daytime, nighttime, there's all these contrasting things that if you really want to like, try to just look into a book and just go all out, go all out at it, um, John is definitely a book you can do that with. Um, now, I would say, um, do not do that with Revelation, which is arguably written by John. Uh, that's one that's probably best understood is that we don't fully comprehend it, and we never will. It's something that's apocalyptic. It transcends what we can even know. We don't know what the end times look like. Um, but what we do know, uh, what it points to at least, is that have faith, do not surrender your faith, uh, and God will always have a perfect witness um, throughout all the heartaches that are going on. Um, but even before we dive in, I was actually really glad that Sean played that song, um, because I don't know how many of you guys know the backstory of that song. Um, and though David Crowder does a great version of it, he wasn't the original writer of it. Um, and whether you're going to argue about sloppy wet kiss or whatever line you want to use in it, um, that's not the point. The point is that, that guy wrote that song out of a heartache. One of his greatest friends died in a tragedy, and he went to God out of anger, and that's the song he came up with after that. So this idea of that as we're going through heartache, as we're broken, as we're suffering together... Seek God, look to him, and this is the response you're going to get. You're going to be comforted. It doesn't mean that you just forget the heartaches that are going on, you forget the injustices that are going on. No, we stand up for that and we fight for that, but we're not fighting for him in a good way if we don't have love. If it's not out of mercy, if it's not out of compassion, it's not out of grace, you know, that it's just our own worldly justice, it's our own worldly fallenness that's just going to be just as corrupted as anything that was done. So I say all that because this applies to this passage. So John 4, um, or John chapter 4, verses 4 through 42. And in this section, um, 
we see some of the stuff going on. We see a Samaritan woman. We see that she um, is educated in some degree of knowing her faith. Um, we see that Christ, who obviously, being God, probably knows what he's talking about too, so he's another educated person. So you have these two educated people coming together and discussing, you know, what does the Messiah look like? What's the potential of where should Jerusalem be? Where's the place to worship? Um, one of the cool points is that she's not given a name, and this is why I love this passage, is that for John, for him to not give a name to somebody, he's intentionally saying it doesn't matter what their name is. What matters is the, is the point I'm trying to drive here. And so he makes it clear that she's a woman as well. And this idea that so she's a woman who has authority that goes back and spreads this gospel to the community that she was with. And what's interesting is she brings people to come to know Christ. The disciples, as we'll read, come back and all they do is like, hey, hey, here's some food. Eat your food. That's pretty much, they pretty much Napoleon Dynamite Tina, Jesus. And they're just like, eat the food. When this woman who doesn't have, you know, Christ as their mentor, <laughs> I know you like that, Maria, <laughs> doesn't, have, doesn't have Christ as, as her mentor currently, you know, or at the time, hears what the gospel message is, goes back, and her entire village essentially comes to know Jesus. So this idea that this woman that wasn't given this authority until Christ brings everybody to know him, the disciples whose job was to be like Christ and to follow Christ come back just simply saying, give me food or eat your food, um, which is interesting because they essentially end where the woman at the well began. She started off by saying, you know, hey, here's some water, you know, or I, you know, I need some water. And Christ redirects her thought. The disciples, who should have known these things or should have seen what was going on, are still stuck on the aspect of just like, but, but aren't you hungry? Did somebody else? Their mind goes into, okay, then somebody else fed him. Um, but yeah, so we're going to read through the, the entire passage. Um, and so there might be some, some long-winded breaths, but uh, we're going to read through that. And then we're going to kind of go through each section. I may actually end up making this a two-part sermon because uh, there's a lot of, lot of context here and a lot of um, just good stuff that I hate to miss out on. And I also don't want to make you guys wait or listen to me preach for 30 minutes when um, it's far better that we are celebrating communion and worship together. Uh, and I have an activity for us to do part of the sermon too. So, But so starting uh, in chapter 4 of John, verse 4, uh, I'm using the NRSV translation. Um, if you guys have the NIV or the ESV, those are also really good translations. Does anybody need a Bible, or does everybody have like one on their phone or anything like that? Everybody good? Okay, so I'm going to start reading in, on verse 4, chapter 4 of John. But he had to go through Samaria, being Jesus. So he came to the Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask and drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share these things common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that you're saying this to, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket. And the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this well will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up with eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. But what you have said is true. This woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where the people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will follow and worship the Father in spirit and truth. And for the Father who seeks such of these things to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all these things. Jesus said to her, I am he. I am the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with this woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city where... um, They left the city and were on their way. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat um, that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me for the completeness of his work. Do not say four months more, then comes the harvest. But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and reaper may, have, or may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which for you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans, that the city believe, many Samaritans from that city believed him because of woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Now that end part there I think is amazing, because that is the perfect example of evangelizing. Um, the aspect that not only did she go to back to her people, was honest about, hey, this is what personally happened to me, she had some education, knowing of Jacob and knowing of the mountain, uh, and that where they worshipped as a people, as Samaritan people, for her to sacrifice those beliefs, to accept what Christ was saying. And then these people, these Samaritan people, ended up following Christ, not because of what the woman said, but because they recognized who Christ is. She took the lens off of herself and what personally happened to her and led to them something that transcended even her experience. But starting in verses uh, 4, uh, and just like a kind of overarching commentary. So again, when we do our Bible study, we've discussed how we need to learn our context. We need to understand the culture and the history. Uh, and so some of the, the culture and the history that we have here is that uh, Jesus, uh, he leaves the confines of traditional Judaism and turns to those in his Jews, whom uh, his Jewish contemporaries reckoned as outsiders or the enemies. That would be the Samaritans. And this happened about because essentially um, at one point, um, the Samaritans said that this mountain, so where this meeting was happening as well, this was the place of their worship. And the Jews were arguing that no, Jerusalem was the place of worship. And I think about even that today. Um, are we still stuck up on stuff like that? Are we still stuck on, like, well, instance, like, this happens to be our place of worship. 
So yeah, we don't have our stained glass upstairs. We don't have our nice carpets and stuff like that. Are we going to sit there and argue about, well, that's the place of worship and this isn't the place of worship? You know, I think we do that so often in the church is that we say that it has to look this way or we argue about theological matters or we make things that are opinions into deeper theological matters that shouldn't be. When the point that what Christ is trying to bring about here is that it doesn't matter what you say it is or what you know, even the Jews say it is, it's who I am and what am I pointing you to. This is the point. And to so the point where he says that there'll be a time um, when there, there's not going to be a matter if you're in Jerusalem or on the mountain. It's going to apply to everybody wherever they are, wherever I say that I am. Um, and so when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, he meets someone who stands marked contrast to all that preceded in the gospel. For example, when Jesus spoke of Nicodemus, so that this would have been John 3, 3, 1, um, he spoke with the named male of the Jewish religious establishment. When he speaks with the Samaritan woman, he speaks with an unnamed female of the enemy people. This is an intentional thing that John is doing. He names Nicodemus. He says that he is a male, and he gives him the authority of, uh, and he is given the authority just based on the culture uh, of being in the religious establishment. So he's looked highly upon. Uh, and what John does here is there's a complete contrast that there's a Samaritan that is essentially an enemy to the Jews. Um, she's a woman, which a man shouldn't be talking, as a Jew, you shouldn't be talking to a woman, uh, and she's not even given a name. So the point that John's trying to make here is that like, there's this contrast of that what's happening here has a theological significance that even transcends what was happening with, or not to say transcends, but has weight to it uh, in the same way that it did with Nicodemus. So in verses 4, 4 through 6, I, I refer to this as practical theology because some people try to look, um, and I think we all do, I shouldn't say some people, we all do, we try to look too deep into the text and try to make it say something to us that it doesn't actually say. And uh, What I mean by practical theology is sometimes people will be like, well, Jesus went through Samaria because of this, and this was going on, and this was going on. It could have just been that that was the easiest way to travel. And you know how we talked historically having an atlas at the time? Um, to get to Galilee, which they were going, the fastest way would be to go through Samaria. So it could have just been a practical thing. Why would I go around when I can just go straight through? But it just so happens, like even with our lives, even if it was just something practical like that, I think being aware for Christ to move wherever we are, whatever situation we are, whether it's practical as it may be, um, that's where the theological significance happens. So Jesus may have practically said, you know what, I'm just going to go through Samaria, and I'm going to deal with this, knowing that you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if she's a Samaritan, I'm, I'm Christ, and what I say transcends Jew or Samaritan. Um, but he may have just been like, hey, this is going to be a shortcut, let's go through there. And it just so happened that going through there led to this encounter. Uh, and so the commentary that I'm using is actually the New Interpreter's um, Bible commentary. And I want to read off what they said about this because I feel like they sum it up very, very well. So this is verses 4, 4 through 6. The introduction provides the setting for the narrative. Verse 4 links the Samaritan text, verses 1 through 3, in order to get, the, get from Judea to Galilee. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Scholars are fairly evenly divided on whether the next journey is strictly geographical or has the theological overtones. The geographical necessity of this trip is supported by Josephus, or Josephus who notes that most ex, the most expedient route from Judea to Galilee during the first century was through Samaria. The word translated as had to, or adai, however, usually is associated with the fourth gospel with God's plan. So what he's saying with this is that, or whoever the commentator of this is that, the had to 
um, when used in the Gospel of John, typically means the will of God, the Greek that's used. Um, so, like, there's this, but John, as an author, loves to do this. He loves to have double meaning of saying that, so he uses that he had to, this, it was the will of God for him to go through Samaria, but he also was saying that, like, practically, he had to if he wanted to get to Gal- Galilee faster. So there's that double meaning there. So it seems best, therefore, to read the necessity of the journey through Samaria as both geographical and theological. Jesus' itinerary may have been governed by the geographical expediency, but his stay in Samaria was governed by the theological necessity of offering himself to those whom socially um, were conventionally deemed unacceptable. The reference to Jacob and the well uh, introduced the traditions that will figure um, the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So um, I, I tend to agree with this commentary as well, is that it's best to be looked at as that both-and theology. So how many of us um, either came from the Orthodox faith or have pursued the Orthodox faith, um, I think it's one of the greatest things you can gain from their theology is the both-and theology, that it's not a this or that, but it's a both-and. That it was a, a practical route for him to go through Samaria, uh, Samaria to get to Galilee. But in the same sense, there's a theological theological significance of him spending time with the Samaritan woman that was looked down upon that culturally people didn't like and him saying this is the person I'm going to talk to and if you notice the disciples aren't there it's just him and this woman having a conversation so in verses four through seven um, Jesus requests for water and recalls the story of Elijah and the widow of Sidon this is from first Kings seventeen ten through 11 In both stories, the man interrupts a woman engaged in the household work to request a gesture of hospitality. The parallels between Elijah and Jesus suggest the image of Jesus as a prophet, a theme that will occupy a pivotal place in Jesus' conversations with the woman to come. And unlike these Old Testament scenes, um, Jesus comes to the well looking for a woman to be his bride, but for a witness who will recognize the Messiah and bring a despised people to him. So again, there's this, this weight of history that's there. It's not merely um, a, uh, a chance situation that's happening. Um, Christ recognizes that this is the, this well of Jacob, and he recognizes the, the Old Testament of, of Elijah and Sidon, and he also recognizes some of the older passages of women being met at this well for the sake of being married, um, which I also think is really cool as well is that when Christ does the whole kind of prophetic bit where he says, no, you've had five husbands, and the person you're with now is currently not your husband. This idea that Christ is even intentionally as a human, saying, I don't have the interest of having you as a wife. His interest is purely for, him to, for her in a true perspective, and for her to have a water that transcends the, or uh, is overflowing what even the well that's there could have. Uh, in verses 4 through 9, or 4 9, Samaritan woman responds to Jesus' request with amazement because it violates two societal conventions. First, the Jewish man did not initiate a conversation with an unknown woman. Moreover, a Jewish teacher did not engage in public conversations with a woman. Hence, the sages have said that he that talks with a woman brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and its last will inherit, uh, Gehenna. Second, Jews did not invite uh, to have did not invite women, especially of Samaritan region. The fourth evangelist aside uh, underscores the seriousness of the breach between Jews and Samaritans, a fear of ritual um, contamination. So it's possible that um, John here uh, is trying to focus on the idea of that culturally um, you didn't spend time, especially as a Jew, you didn't talk to a woman that was of Samaria. Or of Samaria. You didn't do those, that was a, a no-no, uh, even to the point that like, they 
they put in their historical context, some of the sages um, would have said that it was evil upon him uh, and that he neglects the study of the law by talking to a woman. But yet Christ talks to this woman, and not only does he talk to her, he gives her the authority to go and proclaim the gospel back to all of her people. This is something that I think even applies to our culture today, is that and while we've even as a church uh, changed our stance of having women in leadership, um, and the fact that Christ is the one that deems authority. It is not us personally that can say this is what's culturally accepted or what is not culturally accepted. If anything, the church should be the place where um, when things are going on, when these acts of violence are going on, we're trying to find salvation through politics. We're trying to find salvation through laws and legislation. And it's important that we fight for those things, but it's also important that we recognize that it's Jesus that redeems and saves, not our government. It's not whoever's in power, because at the end of the day, God allowed that person to be in power. You know, we're called to be praying for those people, whether they are our enemy or we voted for them. We're called to be praying for those people, that they be given wisdom and guidance in these situations. We're called to be praying for our communities that are going through this heartache. We're called to be walking with them, not just saying, we're going to give you our prayers and thoughts, but actively doing that too, of actively engaging in those schools, actively engaging in the politics of our, of our local scene. Because at the end of the day, that's where we can really affect. We can actually see an outcome. But instead, it's, a far, it's far easier for us just to post a thing on Facebook or dislike something or make a snarky comment and not have a face-to-face interaction. And so this is why uh, I'm going to stop here on this because I'm preaching next week. Uh, and so I'm going to continue uh, on this because I feel like this is a good cliffhanger because like, it, it's just kind of set the preliminaries as to what this passage is about. But I thought it was important because it's like, okay, Jake, you're going to sit there and say that you know, it's not just about prayer. It's not just about turning to God. We need to have a culture that talks and does this stuff and delegates and has good argumentation, where is that going to happen? Well, here's my answer. Well, I shouldn't say my answer. This is what I concluded. I want us to do that today. I want us to take five minutes, um, and I want you to find somebody within our congregation whose last name you don't know. Because I figured if you don't know their last name, it's probably a good indication that you don't know them very well. So you, you can't pick somebody whose political views you agree with or not. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be a political topic. But what I ask is that you would have a conversation of questions. You had a conversation of, um, what do you believe about this? So it may be something that pertains to gun violence. It may be something that pertains to a theological thing. Like, do you believe in the rapture? Why do you believe in the rapture? Do you believe uh, in eternal punishment hell? Do you believe in the saints? How do you believe in these things? But I thought, like, instead of just discussing these topics, instead of just discussing the theological significance of the woman at the well and what Jesus was doing. We practically need to be living by it. And if I'm not enabling us and enabling myself to have an environment to do so, then I'm just as bad as a Sadducee or just some Pharisee that's just talking uh, and just telling you what to do and not actually encouraging you to turn towards Christ and towards towards your community and grow as a church. So what we're going to do is I'm going to put the little timer on and... Uh, what I want is just to find someone whose last name you don't know. And so you may know everybody's last name in here. Find someone you normally don't talk to. Find someone you normally don't have a conversation with and have a series of questions. And what I mean by that is like Christ with the woman at the well. You know, ask them like, okay, what's, what's your view on this said policy or said political thing? And then ask, well, where is mercy being shown? Where is grace being shown? Where is compassion being shown? Where is humility being shown? Where is God being glorified? Where's justice being shown? The reason why I ask this is that if there is a belief that we are to hold, whether you have the answer or you don't have the answer, and if we're going to say it's of a Christian belief, it needs to maintain the characters of whom God is. And hopefully, as a church, if we continue to do this, and I don't plan on doing it every week, but if we can continue to do this as a church, 
we can grow together as the body, and we can be like the Samaritan woman that even though she was educated, and she had an idea, and she had good reason for believing that the mountain was the place of her worship, she was also able to recognize truth when it was brought before her, and she had the humility to sit there, you know what, maybe I'm wrong, and this guy is Christ. Maybe I'm wrong, and my view needs to change. And so if we can do that as a church instead of being divided, um, but we can grow as a church, and we can learn to do that as a church, hopefully in our communities we can start having conversations this way as well. So we're going to start now. So whenever you feel ready or inclined to get up, which most of you probably are like because you're introverted like me, like I'm not moving. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, just get up, find someone, talk for about five minutes. I'm hoping there's no anger or crazy violence and vengeance that happens from this because the reason why I'm doing this now is because after you have this conversation, I want you to pray together with that person and then we're going to participate in communion together. And so we're going to be brought together as the body of Christ. So whenever you feel ready, get up and go.